Welcome to another episode of Between the Bytes, weekly discussions on cybersecurity, IT, and business. My name's Derek. My name's James. And we'd like to welcome back a guest we've had quite a few times now on the podcast, Chet with Sophos. Chet, how's it going today? Pretty darn good. I'm here coming to you from Vancouver today, and we, we've got sunshine, and we got the some time off coming up this weekend, and uh, looking forward to that. And, and a new puppy. And a new puppy, which is more than enough to keep me busy as if the cybersecurity world isn't on fire already. Right? <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, Chet, we've had you on enough to cover all the major topics and, and things we wanted to get from you. For, so for this episode, here we kind of discuss what we're seeing on the horizon or recently in the cybersecurity world. And then I know James has some questions for you as well. So let's kick it off with... There were some things that we touched base on. I know one of the things that Sophos was looking into, and this may have been a little bit longer than I think. I'm kind of bad with past timelines. It could have been a week ago or a year ago. But cookie theft was something that was on your radar. And you guys dug pretty deep into that. And I actually read through the publication you had. Were there any updates or anything else that you noticed or anything that was a tangent from that that you guys discovered? Well, I think it's still happening, right? There's certainly always evolution on the obviously in the front lines between, you know, criminals trying to breach credentials and get into networks. And, you know, the cookie thing I don't think is going to go away anytime soon, that's for sure. And in fact, I'm uh, for people that may if you're a security nerd, you may be coming out to what is affectionately known as Hacker Summer Camp or Black Hat Defcon and B-Sides Las Vegas, which are all the same week, the second week of August this year in you know, nothing better than going to Las Vegas in the desert in this in August. It's, a, it's an ideal time. <laughs> but I will be uh, speaking at the B-Sides Las Vegas track called Passwords Con, and I'll be talking about this very topic. I have a talk called Breaking Bad Multifactor, and uh, Walter White will help us learn a little bit more about how multifactor is being broken, which is primarily through cookie theft. So I'm staying, you know, close to the topic, but I don't know that there's a lot of changes other than I would say it's kind of table stakes at this point when a computer gets infected that whatever credentials are there, whether they're passwords that are stored in a browser or whether they're cookies that are already representing an authenticated session, it's going to be stolen. Gotcha. James, why don't you kick it off with some of the questions that you had for chat? Yeah, I just, to me, it's about looking forward. So what are some, and if you've covered this before, forgive me, I'm... I was not on that podcast, but what are some of the emerging technologies or maybe trends in the field of AV um, that you believe are going to have a significant impact on cybersecurity in the near future? Well, I think it's hard to ignore artificial intelligence considering, despite it being overhyped so much for the last six to eight months since the public release of ChatGPT, there's good reason, unlike other hype cycles, right? Like if I think back to, you know, a year and a half ago, the hype was around NFTs or like just a bunch of nonsense that was never going to be anything. It was just a big scam and con. This time around, while AI is definitely overhyped, that doesn't mean there isn't actually gold in them our hills, right? Like there really are some incredible benefits that can come out of this technology. And I think the table is tilted in favor of defenders for once rather than adversaries. The technology is not incredibly easy to use. To do it well and to do novel and important things with it requires data scientists and lots of GPUs and money and things that criminals don't have. Like the good guys are throwing a lot at this and are going to find a lot of uh, efficiencies and useful ways of using it. 
and you know, I think in our field, it's not about displacing jobs either. I mean, obviously there's a lot of fear around, are you giving your order to an AI bot at Wendy's now, or, <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff in our field, it's about letting humans apply their intellect to things that humans have a difficulty doing these days, right? Like we get a million malicious file samples coming into the lab every day, which 10 do I look at? Like as a human, I, I can't scale to that. I can't figure, I can't go, well, I'll just take a look at all million of them and I'll find the three most interesting ones. Like I have intellect that the machine will never have and I need to look at those samples, but I don't know which ones to look at, right? So can this technology be able to sift through that and go, these 10 are not like the others. This is probably worthy of your attention. I can find the ones that aren't something that's just another one in the mess that you don't care about, but the one that you actually want a human to analyze. Or think about how with XDR products now, you're collecting literally millions of pieces of information from every endpoint computer every month and storing it in some giant data lake in the cloud. Who's good enough at writing SQL queries to get just that one piece of information out of there that you need to do your job as a regular analyst, just an IT person doing their job? It's like, oh, I heard there's a vulnerability in OpenSSL 1.21J this morning. Which of my computers have OpenSSL 1.21J? <laughs> Like you've got the data, like you've, you know, XDR's collected that data, but the question is how long will it take a human to tease that out of that data lake? Well, what if I can ask that in plain language to a tool like ChatGPT and it goes, oh, this is the SQL query you need to pull that out of that data lake, right? My glory days of writing SQL queries are long in my past. Like I, I need that. I need that help. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. And as far as like some of the emerging technologies, and I know it's not brand new to us by any means, but just kind of the the scale of it's growing so rapidly, the, the IoT, the Internet of Things. So how do you see the role of antivirus kind of evolving in this cloud computing, IoT, and maybe other emerging technologies? Well, I think, you know, antivirus itself, as people think of it, has already long been dead. I mean, it, you know, obviously we all refer to it now as, you know, endpoint protection for good reason. I mean, there's very little of the way we traditionally approach these problems that are the most effective components in the products moving forward. And we have to look at those individual technologies and how they can be applied to these new areas, right? So if you're looking at a traditional endpoint today, your most effective things are things like, well, AI, because that's one of the things that allowed us to not have to write so many darn virus identities and all this kind of stuff. We can just learn what bad stuff looks like and detect it that way. But we also use a lot of behavioral technologies and pattern recognition rather than the idea that a checksum is going to block anything stopped being true probably 25 years ago. So clearly, you know, modern things have to look at the behavior of something and identify a series of actions that are likely something malicious. And, and with more and more human adversaries being involved in attacks, especially things like ransomware attacks that we see are so high profile. You know, humans are very unpredictable by their nature. And that means that you have to be looking at those behavioral things. You're like, well, if the person's going to steal my cookies, for use a previous example from this podcast, if you're going to steal my cookies, then you got to put your hand in the cookie jar so I can put safeguards around the cookie jar. Well, when we look at cloud and IoT and things like that, I think we have to get creative because clearly we're not going to install uh, endpoint protection software on your Alexa and even appliances. I mean, you know, for folks that follow security news, you, you may be aware of a major vulnerability that's been exploited a lot the last few weeks from a, a software product called MoveIt. And MoveIt is a secure file transfer tool that was used by a lot of, unfortunately, very secure and confidential kind of organizations because they needed to securely move files, which is sort of a bad, worst case scenario. And 
you know, people are like, well, what could you do about it? It's like, well, those boxes are appliances. They don't have security software on them. And if you buy one of those appliances to move files around, you can't put your Sophos on there or your CrowdStrike or anything, right? Like it's a box and you have to trust the vendor to secure that box and, and to maintain the software on that box. But that doesn't mean we're helpless, right? We can detect that that box is behaving poorly and isolate it. We could monitor the network around that box, just like any other IoT device, whether it's your Alexa or whether it's a Move It appliance. You know, NDR tools, you know, Sophos has NDR. There's other things out there like Darktrace and, and tools like that that can watch for anomalous behaviors of these devices. And while I can't do something on the device itself, like stop it from running malicious code, we can isolate it, we can alert on it, we can firewall it, you know, do different things with it, right? And in the cloud, I think it's much more about behavioral issues and also monitoring policy, right? Most cloud breaches we're seeing are a result of something being misconfigured by accident because of the complexity involved in setting policies. I don't know if you've ever um, managed an AWS environment. I'm not trying to pick on Amazon. They're important partner Sophos actually, but like as somebody who's not a professional full-time cloud administrator, when I run my Amazon instances in EC2, I look at the policies and I'm like, oh, wow, like it's a job to write policies for Amazon. Like you, that's a full-time career to understand all of the things that you can turn on and off and how to manipulate them all. And so simple errors in those policies lead to large data breaches sometimes, right? So, you know, I think in each area, we have to look at what we can do. And I think when we're looking at IoT and things like that, we're going to be focusing on a lot on network analysis to see if the device is behaving in a way that's unexpected for what its purpose is. Whereas in the cloud, I think we're much more focused on if we can lock down these policies, we don't need to worry about a lot of the other things as much. And then, you know, the monitoring part becomes about behavior. Why is 40 gigabytes suddenly going to mega upload? That's probably not supposed to happen from my cloud. And on the prevention side, as opposed to something like antivirus, we're really going to be looking at, well, can we make sure the policies are consistent across all of our instances and point out common mistakes and failures that may be in your policies that you may not even be aware of to alert you to the fact that something is, this is a common misconfiguration. Are you sure? <laughs> that's a great answer. Thank you. And that's, yeah, that's been my experience as well. And I remember when Sophos came out with the Intercept X product and I started learning about it and with it was behavior-based many years ago. And I was like, this is it. This is the answer. We got to move to behavior-based. Signature is, is old school. It doesn't work anymore. So I appreciate the future look. Yeah, and, and you know, those things are sometimes useful, right? As indicators of compromise, those old-fashioned checksums and things can have value. So it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, they're not great for detection purposes, but they are good for looking in the rearview mirror, right? As we were preparing for the podcast this morning, there's some headlines the, the day we're recording about solar winds again, as their CISO may be under investigation by the SEC. And that solar winds case is an example where, again, using old things in combination with new is not, is not too bad of a thing. Like we, you want your proactive protection to be behavioral, but then when you want to know, was I compromised by this threat actor, being able to share those checksums or, that were used in those attacks allow you to go into an XDR tool, rewind time and say, was this file ever on my network? That kind of thing. So like anything, you want to use the right tool at the right time. And some of those old school techniques still have some value. Understood. Agreed. I appreciate the forward look. So looking backwards a little bit in, in Chet's history, if I may, are there any like success stories or significant breakthroughs that you can share that you've done in your research and contributions to this AV field? Oh, gosh, what an interesting question. I've been doing this so long, I, I, I hadn't really uh, 
put too much thought into that. I mean, I don't think on a technical side, I haven't, I would say I haven't really contributed anything specific that's, you know, had a, a big impact. I think where my impact has largely been is this exact thing that we're doing here today, taking that 25 years of experience and knowledge in our industry and distilling that down into things that people can take away, learn something from them, and actually take actions to make themselves safer. And And I think that's actually a giant failing of the industry as a whole. There's a lot of complexity and we're not doing a good job of distilling it down so that people can focus on the areas where they're most likely to have impact. In fact, we're almost doing the opposite. We look for the shiny, sexy thing and everybody wants to look and chase after that thing. It's all about what this Chinese or Russian APT group did in that one nuclear plant that they got into in, you know, in that one situation. And we spend, we take all the air out of the room talking about that. Because it is fascinating, to be honest. I, I love reading that stuff, and I love collaborating with the people who get to work on it. But it's not exactly useful for me to defend my factory where I build widgets. <laughs> like, I don't need to worry about that problem, right? Like, my actual problem is that my users are setting their passwords to Red Sox 99, and that criminals have stolen it from a forum 10 years ago and are reusing it because it also is what they used on LinkedIn. That's my real problem, right? And so I think my personal contribution to the industry has been consistently over the last 15 plus years of getting on the media, getting on podcasts, speaking at conferences and events, and trying to distill this stuff down to something understandable for people that hopefully is still interesting and engaging, but that they can walk away and actually be safer as opposed to know a little bit more about how Iran centrifuges refined nuclear material and how malware works in that environment. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so since we're talking about this space, and I know you're not a salesperson, I'm not asking you to sell it, but what are some of the key factors that maybe individuals, organizations should consider when they're selecting an antivirus software? Well, at this point, I think my focus is getting more and more on the services and less and less on the tooling. Um, I think the top tier tooling from all the vendors is a pretty good grade. Uh, obviously, we all have different approaches to how we do things that give us competitive advantages technologically. But the real name of the game is lowering your time to detect and time to respond when the tools can't be proactive, right? Obviously, in an ideal world, you know, our endpoint intercept X with XDR tool is designed to stop you from getting infected to begin with, right? But along the path, when it's a human adversary who's persistent and tenacious, they don't give up just because an alert popped up on your console saying you detected one of their tools. They come back in three minutes with a different tool and you detect that tool. And then they go, well, what do I have to do to mangle this tool so it's no longer detected and I can get it in the door, right? And that's where I think most of the failure is occurring that's leading organizations to be victimized is that the 2010 attitude of my antivirus or my endpoint software detected Traj slash Titan X, that means it worked, it blocked the thing, therefore I can ignore it, right? I'll just put that in my report to say that my tools are working when I have to report to management why I'm spending so much money on these tools. Whereas really a detection today of that same thing should be the beginning of an investigation or a threat hunt. And so the differentiators really come down to the services surrounding the software packages now for organizations that are too small to run their own SOC and have that own capability internally. And, and all of us are talking about MDR nonstop these days for that very reason. 
I mean, yes, it's clearly something we sell and I'm glad we do because it probably helps pay my salary and there's some very you know smart people out there doing all that work at Sophos. But the reality is I don't see how any organization can do it themselves unless they're of really large scale. And the success and failure differences is how quickly did you detect that somebody was trying to get in and how effective and quickly were you able to respond to make sure they were locked out? And the numbers are getting, you know, there, there was a case we had three weeks ago where from the initial breach to the time the ransomware was triggered was like two hours and 12 minutes and 40 seconds. So from the time that you heard somebody jiggling the door handle until you were breached and, and ransomed was just over two hours, right? So you've got to be quick. And that's not typical, like typical is more like eight or nine days between the initial breach. So they, these are not unsolvable problems for humans, but that's the kind of stuff that internal teams really struggle with. Right. And I talked to a customer here in Vancouver last week and I said, what was it that, like, why did you buy our MDR service? Like, I know your budgets are tight. They're a nonprofit. And they're like, well, how else could I get a 24 by seven team of people working on these problems and defending my network. I don't have a budget for that. Like the $60,000 add on to my license sounds like a lot of money because it is a lot of money. And especially as a nonprofit, it's a lot of money to us, but who could I hire for $60,000 and how many days would they work and how many hours and how much would they know if I'm only paying them $60,000, you know, as far as the latest threats and exploits. And like, it's just, it's a no brainer unless you're a large enough organization that you can hire a dozen people to run your sock. And then another two or three, just in case a few of them need to go on holiday or have a baby or something. And also it's that time to detect and respond. I hope that in your network, you haven't been breached by the Royal ransomware group six times before so that you recognize what it looks like when Royal's trying to break into your network. Whereas when you're, whether you're doing, you know, the SOFO service or whether you've got Arctic Wolf or one of our competitors out there like that, our teams literally see these guys every day breaking into people's networks or trying to break into people's networks. And so within a few seconds, an analyst looking at that goes, oh, I know those tools. I've seen this play before. <laughs> like that's Royal. I know what they're going to do next. They're going to try to dump all the creds out of Active Directory. So first thing I'm going to do is go lock that down. And then I'm going to see how I can knock these guys out in the network because I know this is how the, this is their playbook. This is how that person works. I know my adversary, right? And, and as a defender, I hope you don't know those adversaries that well, because you're probably not facing them every day, but it means your ability to recognize an attack is diminished compared to a, a pooled resource like you get from a services organization. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And that's a great perception. Thank you. Are there any specific industries or sectors that you find are more vulnerable to cybersecurity attacks? And maybe what are the reasons behind that? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> healthcare, local government, municipalities, K-12 schools, and it's all the same reason. Largely public money, which is scarce, and lack of resources to, to defend themselves well, and very difficult to hide that you've been breached when, you know, when the school closes. Parents kind of want to know why it's closed. Uh, when the ER closes, the community generally demands to know why the ER is closed. And um, when you can't pay your taxes or your water bill, generally citizens want to know from their city what the heck's going on. And so you can't hide. There's so much pressure to get back online quickly that you may be very tempted to pay. You're incredibly likely to have insurance, which likely might cover the ransom. So I think those areas in particular are vulnerable. And I mean, healthcare is a slightly odd one because it is a for-profit thing in the US, which is different than everywhere else in the world. But I think the constraints are similar either way. 
again, and it, and a lot of this goes to scale, and I and, and I don't know enough internally about things, but for example, you know, we typically don't hear about Kaiser Permanente having 700 hospitals knocked offline because when you're at that scale, you have the money and the resources and the smart security people that probably are more effective at getting those protections down to the local layers. But when it's, you know, St. Francis of Assisi Hospital, that's, you know, the local one, that's where they're extra vulnerable because they don't have those resources. And do you spend a million dollars on XDR and MDR solutions or do you buy a new MRI machine? Like the community wants you to buy the MRI machine and they're going to be super angry if you spend that on cybersecurity. And it's no different than in your city, right? Like we heard about the city of Atlanta was ransomed. The city of Baltimore was ransomed. There's like, there's an endless list of cities that have been ransomed, but it's the same problem, right? Like even if they wanted to spend the money on the solutions, I think taxpayers would be outraged that they were spending that money instead of fixing the potholes in front of their house. And so I think that's a real, really difficult constraint for schools, hospitals, and municipalities to work their way out of compared to the rest of the private sector, where, to be honest, it's about, you know, judging how much profit you want to make and how much you want to reinvest in defending your market segment. And I genuinely have a lot of uh, empathy for those victims because it's, they're in a tough spot. Yeah. Yeah, Well said. Derek, did you have any questions? I was actually going through and working on editing a, a webinar that our security team did recently with Cassell. And Cassell out here works with a lot of cities and municipalities. And one of their big issues that they run into is how public any governmental body has to be with who works there, what their positions are. At the city level, it's what construction projects are going on. Those basic things, they need to be publicly known. And that causes a massive amount of vulnerability. And Tyler, one of our people that works with James on the security team, had talked about a city who had a construction project going on. And because that was publicly known, the construction company that was actually doing the work, they were the ones who got, we'll say hacked. One of the bad actors got access to one of the construction workers' email account. So then they were able to send an email requesting a change of billing information from a legitimate email from that construction company. And this was a seven-figure dollar amount. They updated the billing information to the bad place, and the city sent the payment. And then, obviously, by the time they figured out that they sent to the wrong person, that it wasn't actually with that construction company, it was far too late. And that's just because, yeah, the city, of, of course, they have to tell you know, all of their citizens, this is what we're working on right now. And then the construction company being, you know, they need to bring in more business, will have their signs up. It's very easily known who's working on what and what you guys are doing and who all works in the government. And so it creates a lot of vulnerabilities. Yeah. Well, and and that public information also creates that scrutiny that sometimes is unwarranted, but people, the the general public doesn't understand. A top-notch security analyst to protect the city is likely going to command a $225,000 salary. And when that information is public, people are like, what? Like, why are we spending this much money on one person? Like, who is this person? Like, what, what is going on with that? But it turns out that's what a, a good quality security analyst that has the knowledge to build an effective program to defend an entire city against attacks is probably going to cost you. Yeah. And the public is not really accepting of that. And, uh, you know, I, I went through some of this talking to the RCMP here in Canada, asking them why they were having such trouble recruiting, you know, cybersecurity cops, if you will. And it's like, well, we have a union and the union says that a base starting salary for a police officer is $72,391, right? So if we're going to hire in security computer cop, that's what we can pay them. 
it's like that's not going to fly like you're not going to get anybody with the four-year degree in cybersecurity, even fresh out of college probably for that especially in canadian dollars it's not even real money like we're, <laughs> you know it's like 50 grand us or something right so it's a big challenge and and the, those compromise like you talk about the email compromise i think that's a really important thing to bring up derek actually we, we talk about that too which is I'm not convinced that things like these phishing attack tests and things are of any value anymore, right? Because what you described is much more what's happening. Real email accounts are just being compromised to send the emails from the legitimate, from another victim to you, right? So there's no, oh, you should be looking to see if it really is from who it says it is. That doesn't work because it is from who it says it is. It just turns out there's a criminal operating their computer right now. <laughs> um, the average person is not going to be able to detect that ChatGPT wrote that email. The average person won't be able to detect that it's a criminal because it's coming from a real person's email that they know uh, or a real Facebook account that was compromised that sent them a fake sorry, Facebook messenger or a WhatsApp, right? So the truth is our tools have to do this because with the ability for humans to spot these things is kind of that ship has sailed. And the advice for, for anybody listening on these business email compromise wire transfer scams that you described. It's not a technical solution. This is a, a business control that you need to put in place. You need to have a policy that says anytime there's going to be a change in account number, you contact back over the telephone, the official person of record at that organization. You don't do it over email. You don't do it over text messages. There should always be a second factor. It's just not a tool that we're going to build. There's no software for this. It's a sticky note on your monitor reminding you <laughs> like, hey, you know, how often do people change their, their bank accounts for wire transfers? Twice a year. So since it's only once in a while, let's have this extra procedure in place, even though it's a little slower, because it's not a frequent thing. It's not something I got to deal with five times a day that's going to take a bunch of time. Yeah. Which is exactly what that city did is implemented that exact policy of any financial changes in any way have to be positively confirmed over the phone. And then, of course, the big call out is if you get an email that doesn't feel good that you want to confirm or you just want to avoid getting in trouble because it's a lot of money, whatever the reasoning, if you want to reach out, do not call the phone number that's in the email. If there is <laughs> exactly. one, don't, don't use that one. Get online or if you still have yellow pages, get the yellow pages. Is that Look the company so? up the proper way. I don't think so. I still get a, a phone call every now and then from the scam pages. <laughs> they ask you to confirm your information. And if you say yes on the phone call in any way, they'll try and send you a bill for $450 for Yellow Pages <laughs> Sydney or something like that. I guess the phone book would be really small if they still publish them, right? Because who has an right. actual telephone line? Because they never put <laughs> cell numbers in them. So it's true. You know, I actually have an article that I wrote for Executech for those who want to look into it more on how to read URLs and pay attention to that in phishing scams. But the hard theme at the very beginning is... If you don't want to deal with all this, if you don't want to learn how to read URLs or how to try and spot this, if it doesn't feel good or if it doesn't, it seems off, depending on your, your office, either stand up and go walk to that person who that email seems to have come from and ask them to confirm or yeah, get on the phone and call them directly. Hey, did you send this? It's as simple as that. You can learn the knowledge. It's kind of interesting to see how they're spoofed. I, I think it's, it's kind of fun to spot that stuff. But when it comes down to it, if you don't want to learn it, or you want to be extra sure, reach out. Yeah. And it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, even as somebody who's, you know, been doing this forever, uh, there's more than a few times that I occasionally stumble. I wrote a blog for Sophos last autumn. So it would have been, I don't know, around October, November, complaining about how tech companies are making this worse as well. So like Microsoft Azure 
I think I figured out they use 74 different domain names within the Azure infrastructure when you're accessing Office 365. So how do you train somebody that Microsoft-Online.net is okay, but Microsoft-Online.com is not? Like just, it's impossible, right? Like there's just, uh, you know, on Microsoft.com, on MSFT.com. I mean, just, <laughs> it just goes on and on and on. And I, you know, it, we shouldn't give up. But on the other hand, I think we do need to recognize that our tools need to be better. The technology needs to work for us and we shouldn't have to be fighting the technology to decode URLs. Agreed. Yeah. So speaking of that, what do you think are some of the biggest maybe misconceptions people have about antivirus and its capabilities. I know personally, I'll go to some uh, small organizations. They're like, we got antivirus, we're good to go, right? You know, we're all, we're bulletproof now, right? So tell me in your experience, what are some of the, the limitations or some of the misconceptions people have about an antivirus product? Well, I think in general, people assume that it's like you say, I mean, it's sort of a hundred percent preventative or whatever. And the real shift across the board has been to human adversaries in the last 10 years. And whenever there's a human involved, the tool will always fail if the human tries long enough, right? The tool is an early learning system, not a prevention system. And it makes you more resilient. It gives you more information and allows you to do a better job of defending yourself, but it's not perfect and it's not just going to stop everything. And in fact, when the alarm bells are going off, like, well, I referred to earlier, it doesn't mean that it succeeded because it blocked a thing it really means that somebody's trying to get in and you better batten down the hatches. Mm -hmm. And so and let's clarify for individuals, for end users, most threats are not these days focusing on end user computers that much because there's not as much money to steal or profit to be made. So human driven attacks are almost entirely focused at businesses or enterprises, organizations, because humans won't waste their time to break into one computer, right? So everything that's facing consumers is typically automated or it's a social scam of some sort. You know, we see a lot of these pig butchering scams where people are trying to get you to invest in cryptocurrencies and wash trading and then a bunch of other stuff like that. Or the, you know, we've kidnapped your grandkids and you need to send us some money or, you know, the social scams, of course, are targeting all kinds of consumers and we all get the phone calls. It's the only phone calls we get anymore. If you're, if you're like me, we just don't, nobody answers the phone anymore because it's nine times out of 10, it's a scam, right? Yeah. But on the, on the business side, when you're looking at AV, I think the real evolution is that these tools are tools that need to be in capable hands and actually wielded. They're not just static things that you turn on and have a policy. And organizations who understand that are not in the headlines. And most of the organizations that you read about in the news that have been compromised, it's because they didn't understand that or apply those practices. For sure. All right. This has felt a little doom and gloomish. I don't like <laughs> On other side, tell us about maybe some hopes or aspirations for the future of AV and cybersecurity. What, what's some good outlook we're seeing out there? Well, you know, in general, the skill required to bypass modern technology continues to get harder and harder for the criminals, right? And a lot of the things that I think the public has anxiety about, I heard a lot of people asking me about, you know, will people have artificial intelligence to be able to automatically exploit software or these kinds of things? And I'm like, bring it on. That sounds fantastic to me. If you can write an AI bot that knows how to find exploits in software, what's the, what am I going to do? The first thing I'm going to do is buy it and run it against my software. <laughs> so then I'll close all those holes and then you won't, you know, like if we have a better way of finding vulnerabilities, then 
that's fantastic, right? I don't have to hire Veracode now. I mean, as things get more and more automated and that makes them more affordable to more people to have better defenses, these are all things that, you know, we've made a ton of progress in the last 20 years. If you had invited me on in 2010, 10% of the internet was encrypted. And then Ed Snowden, love him or hate him, did what he did. And here we are, 2023, it's like 99.5% of the internet is encrypted. We've made a ton of progress, right? Like public Wi-Fi was a fear for a long time because there was no encryption, right? I can go sit at Starbucks and work all day. That's fine. I have no fear of public Wi-Fi at all now because everything I do is protected by TLS and nobody can spy on me while they're sitting next to me. So even law enforcement, like a lot of people don't report cybercrime, which I think is a mistake. I think people should report cybercrime. No, the FBI can't always help, but it's really important that we understand the scale and scope of these problems so we can apply policies, regulations, and utilize our spy agencies and our policing agencies to help us combat these crimes. And we can only do that if we know how often they're happening. But the reason people cite that they don't do it is like, well, they're never going to catch them. They're all in Russia. Well, one, they're not all in Russia. We just had another Canadian arrested last week that was part of a ransomware gang. So there's apparently about a bad Canadians as well. Mostly in Quebec, I suspect the French speaking ones are extra suspicious. But like, not only are they not all in Russia, the wheels of justice just move slowly, right? Like these encrypted phones that were being sold to criminals, the anchor chat phones. It's been three years since the police took down that operation and figured out who, which drug smugglers had all these phones and everything. And, and the arrests were this week. It was three years from when they busted the network to when they actually busted the criminals that were part of it. And we forgot about the original crime in those intervening three years. So, you know, there are more and more cybercrime arrests, prosecutions, and warrants being issued every day. We're getting better and better at speeding that process up and understanding how to deal with cybercrime. And I think people feel defeated. They don't feel like we're doing anything, but we are. We're making lots of progress. We're encrypted. The police are more effective than ever. And turns out criminals like going to Disneyland and we can arrest them when they do that. If we know who they are. I think there was a guy who was arrested in Arizona on vacation two weeks ago, a Russian cyber criminal. Um, we frequently pick them up in Malta or Crete or some other sunny place in the Mediterranean where they go on holiday and has extradition with the United States. So, you know, this, these aren't hopeless things. And if the only vacation you can take is in Sochi, that might be punishment enough. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm pretty sure with how Disneyland and Disney World and their pricing is going, I think being a, some kind of a crime boss is the only way anybody can afford that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and you have to wear a tracking bracelet or something now, or I, I've heard, I, I have not been to an amusement park in quite some time, but yeah. So yeah, I, I am optimistic that things are not necessarily doom and gloom. And uh, I think it's getting harder and harder for the criminals to keep up to some degree. But as long as there's billions of dollars at stake, I don't see this war ever ending. Yeah, Derek and I have discussed the, the same thing and come to the very similar conclusions, which is we really need to raise the visibility so everyone can be very clear on how big an issue this is. I think it takes a long time to get to the point where like, wow, we need to do something. This is a big deal because so many people were keeping it hidden, yeah. didn't want to be public about it. Yeah, and I don't know if that's going to change any. I mean, it's, it's, and if anything, it's almost getting worse, I think, in that um, I'm hearing more and more frequently that organizations that have an incident, their lawyers are telling them not to get an incident response report. They don't want it written down what they did wrong because it could surface in court if they're sued by their customers, their partners. It could come up with regulators if they're going to be fined as something. So let's not document anything. Let's be sure we do not learn from our mistakes because if we learn from our mistakes, we might not be victimized again. 
And this is very bad for the community, but it is getting to be incredibly common, particularly in the United States, because in, in Europe with GDPR and things like that, you're forced to disclose and there's criminal penalties. But in the US where there's really no privacy laws and no mandatory disclosure rules nationally, I think this is an area we'll see a lot of change in, well, maybe, I mean, Congress can't really agree that the sky is blue at the moment. So that seems unlikely we're going to have any legislation. But I think there's a real, everybody knows it's a problem. And there's a real desire for something. It's just nobody's quite sure what they're going to do yet. And I'm watching very carefully the EU legislation, the Australian legislation, the Canadian legislation, because I think similar to the United States model, where you generally let 50 states pass 50 different laws and then eventually kind of figure out which ones are working. And then you kind of make that a new federal template to apply to everything. That model is not a terrible model. I mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But watching what other countries are doing, what success and failure they have, hopefully will inform, even if it's a delayed US policy, maybe it'll be a stronger, better US policy when it's finally implemented, because they're able to take the best bits from everybody else's experiments and put together a, a strong policy. But information sharing is critical. CISA in the US is a strong proponent of all of us sharing more information. And the lawyers at every turn are working against us. And that has to be resolved if we want to be able to make progress as a community. Yeah, it does. It slows progress. It slows progress on a lot of levels. If you are, say, a hospital, a small local hospital, and you don't hear about that many breaches for other medical facilities because they're not disclosing it, it's only the big ones that you hear about, then that mindset of I'm too small for anybody to care or try and attack me will stay nice and strong and prevalent in the forefront of anybody who runs those hospitals' mind. And then on the investigation side, if you are working for the FBI or some government agency where cybercrime is your deal and you're trying to track some organization down and all you have to go off of is three occurrences of when this organization took some kind of an action and successfully breached a company, they did it 47 times, but everybody else is being kind and keeping it a secret for, for that bad organization when they got attacked. Now you, you have such a small sample size and a much smaller window for error for this organization. Yeah. And, and companies don't want to acknowledge it even when like it's happening to them and you're telling them it's happening. Like we often contact victims that we see, we know are being actively attacked by something we're tracking and we call them up and we're like, Hey, you're under attack. We can see it. You're like two days from ransom. Like, you got to do something right now. Do you need help? Do you want a rapid response service? Or do you got this? Or can you call in your experts or whatever? Oh, no, no, we got to handle. No problem, no problem. Two days later, they're on the ransom site with their data being you know, sold. And you're going, you know, how deep in the sand can your head be that you're literally having the FBI call you or a security vendor call you and say, we are witnessing somebody trying to break into your house. You should lock the doors. And you go, yeah, we got this. And then you just leave for the day. <laughs> um, it's bad. And the information sharing all the way around is bad. And uh, I think it's getting a lot better within the industry itself. But it doesn't do any good if the customers in the end aren't uh, heeding any of it. Like CIS is publishing fantastic information out of DHS these days on which threats you should be paying attention to, what you do to protect yourself against those threats. The information is great. The question is, who's consuming the information? I already knew the stuff they're publishing. So the fact that I'm reading, it's not really helping. The average small and mid-sized business in Main Street USA needs to be understanding these things. And they're not going out to CISA and reading their bulletins on cybersecurity. 
So we got to figure out how to bridge that gap. I think you guys are part of the answer. Like partners around the world are the connection between the actual people who need to consume this information and those of us that produce it. And we need to work together to disseminate that so that people that need to hear the message are getting it. Agreed. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. Before we wrap this episode up, do either of you have any final thoughts on cybersecurity, technology, where we're going and where we're headed, or uh, seemingly obvious, but underutilized best practices when it comes to any of this stuff? I think we covered a lot of it today, Derek. I mean, it, it kind of went all over the place on different topics and the key to me for 2023, when people are like, you know, what's the most important thing to do when we're talking about organizations and businesses? And, and to me, it's figure out ways to reduce the time to detect and the time to respond. And the shorter you can make those time periods, no matter what mechanism you're using to do it, the more success you're going to have. We're seeing a larger and larger percentage of people using XDR products that are saying, I was attacked by ransomware but I wasn't encrypted. And that's because they're able to interrupt that attack chain before it completes. And that's really encouraging that those numbers are going up every year. We see slightly more companies saying, yeah, the ransomware guys got in, but they didn't actually cause any harm in the end. We stopped them before they stole the data. We stopped them before they encrypted our files. And to me, that's where I'm encouraging people to focus their efforts. If you can reduce that time to detect, then even if you have one of those guys manage to find their way into your network, you have a really good chance of evicting them, kicking them out of your network before anything bad happens. Yeah, excellent. And from our from my perspective, I think I like one of the things that Chet said, which is we really need to get better about taking all the security information that's out there and boiling it down to something actionable for business leaders, business owners, someone to actually be able to do something about it. So I'm going to plug this podcast to say, it's part of what we're doing is we're bringing experts like Chet in here and we're discussing how do we how do we take what's really going on out there and all these thousands of articles we see and boil it down to something actionable. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll do more of that in the future for sure. That's right. And maybe next time you can have Chet GPT on. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. All right, James and Chet, thank you again for joining me. And that's it for this episode. We will catch you guys on the next one. Be safe out there, folks. Cheers. See ya.